0: Greetings, my name is Philip Bateman. I'm the Managing Director of Bravo Charlie, and I'm really pleased to bring you this recap of the inaugural Sydney Morning Herald Sustainability Summit, produced with Informa Connect and sponsored by McKinsey and Company, Salesforce and Mastercard. Please note, whilst I was given a media pass to the summit, these thoughts are my own. This recap and any quotations attributed to names are my best attempt based on my notes, and you'll find these as part of the LinkedIn article that goes with this video. This summit was an excellent experience, and I believe you'll be able to get the full day's recording and more information over at the website. Lisa Davies, editor of the Sydney Morning Herald opened the Day, also emceeing the majority of the conference, handing to various colleagues through the panel sessions. Lisa let us know that during the bushfire crisis, the paper received over 100,000 people contacting them about climate change and what businesses and governments were going to do about it. This spurred particularly John McDooling at The Herald to kick off this summit, and the question became evident, how do we build a sustainable future? And that this was the most pressing imperative of business and politics. For corporate Australia, prioritising sustainability is a crucial part of future success. As an aside, the quality of the speakers at the summit, their insights demonstrated a remarkable enthusiasm and positive step towards this future. The Minister for Energy and Environment of New South Wales, the Honourable Matt Keane, opened the morning as part of catalyzing the action section. He noted safety and survival were fundamentals required by Australians of their leaders, and he focused in on how to rebound the economy from the deep recession we're finding ourselves in. He stated that a half-hearted approach to restarting the economy will not work. We're creating a transgenerational debt, and that What we decide to spend our national wealth on over the next 12 months will determine the type of environment we endow and the kind of jobs we have in the future. He said that looking through the rearview mirror is an ineffective way to deliver policy, and that fear, scaremongering and division have previously driven our nation. If we want to repay future generations with interest, we should borrow to start building them a low-carbon world today. Mr. Keane pointed towards the Chief Scientist's report on the opportunity for New South Wales in a low-carbon economy, looking to the pillars of green chemicals, hydrogen and agriculture, and therein, the opportunities for carbon sequestration and coordinated renewable energy zones. To the question, what does a successful sustainable recovery look like, the minister spoke of the Memorandum of Understanding signed with the federal government for $3 billion in energy transition. Throughout the day, there was a Q&A option in the conference, and I often found the questions asked from attendees drove straight to the heart of most of the discussions. In this instance, it was suggested that New South Wales had to agree to 70 petajoules of gas at Narrabri to get that funding. In response to the Minister's plan, I asked, and thanks to Lisa for reading this out to the Minister, is this posed as an adjunct or an alternative to a gas-led recovery? My main takeaway from his response was the statement that if you want cheaper electricity for families, renewables are the way forward. As we go forwards, gas will be a white elephant based on the economics. This took us to the fireside chat and Apple Roadmap to Carbon Neutrality, featuring Lisa Jackson, Vice President of Environment Policy and Social Initiatives at Apple. Lisa laid out one of the most inspiring things I've heard, which you could argue is reasonable as the most, or was the second most profitable company on Earth behind Saudi Aramco, though nonetheless, Apple has gigawatts of new clean energy coming online. They're currently carbon neutral for their corporate emissions, and they have committed to bring their entire carbon footprint across the business, manufacturing and whole of the product lifecycle to carbon neutral by 2030, which is effectively eight years away. To quote Ms. Jackson, These next 10 years are absolutely crucial to be able to say to our children and grandchildren we did everything we could to stop catastrophic climate change that will cause incredible harm and sadness. The Apple plan is intending to reduce emissions by 75% by 2030 and develop innovative carbon removal solutions for the remaining 25%. You can read about it at apple.com forward slash environment. Lisa spoke to businesses being compelled to move due to their customers' and employees' expectation and that government needs to partner with business so that customers are not getting passed on the costs of old energy systems, which I thought was a fascinating consideration. Other notes I have are about the Apple Impact Accelerator, which focuses on supporting people of colour, their associated businesses and communities, and seeing them as a stakeholder group to be nurtured. In answer to, could Australia be left behind if our government doesn't get on board, the answer was quite simply, it's not smart in the future, it's smart now. This leads me to the next session, with Jonathan Watson, senior partner at McKinsey, director of the McKinsey Global Institute and co-chair of the Urban China Initiative, who blended some pretty dire predictions with some great one-liners, such as, you can tell the pioneers, they're the ones with the arrows in their back, which could fit nicely with Apple at times. Jonathan took us through the physical hazards and socioeconomic impacts of climate change, from a report titled Climate Risk and Response. And to be frank, as I've listened to science-based analysis summaries for a decade or more, this is the kind of thing that makes me want to leave the city far behind and move to a self-sustaining food commune on a hill in New Zealand. If you're a regular, you'll know what's coming, though let's rip through it. Firstly, scenarios. From managing coastal flooding to collapsing mortgage markets in places such as Florida if home to become uninhabitable, India becoming too hot to work, the disruption of rain cycles through Africa, and that the world's five breadbaskets are concentrated in areas that are about to undergo significant temperature shifts. This was overlaid by a look at system thresholds, firstly where the body suffers lethal heatstroke, maize crop reproduction collapses when temperature conditions are not maintained, and physical assets such as bridges and other infrastructure disintegrating when exposed to flooding of more than three metres. There was a lot more, though in short, looking to both 2030 and 12 2050, there are massive changes afoot, and the next decade is decisive. Also, that as insurance is repriced annually, as an industry, they're struggling to keep up with a volatile future, which doesn't bode well for those of us that rely on insurance, which I suggest is most of the planet. <music> Towards Zero Waste, a panel on solving the massive plastics packaging and waste problem. This included Sandra Martinez, CEO of Nestle Oceania, Anthony Pratt, Executive Chairman of Vizi, Brooke Donnelly, CEO of the Australian Packaging Covenant Organization, and Gail Sloan, CEO of the Waste Management and Resource Recovery Association of Australia. This was moderated by James Chessel, Executive Director of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Right out of the gate, one of our greatest exports, Anthony Pratt, Let us off with the fact that there's no excuse not to remanufacture 80% of the waste in a bin, which is cardboard and glass, into a product. We need to be focused on turning glass into glass and paper into paper or into clean energy, to turn bottles into bottles or transforming it into a wheelie bin, and only then into clean energy, not into road furnishings. Mr Pratt's talking about taking the least carbon-intensive option in the hierarchy of waste transformation. He let us know that landfills emit more carbon dioxide than all of global aviation and put it quite simply, stop putting things in landfill. If we can halve what goes into landfill, we can also bring back manufacturing to Australia, driven by utilising the inexpensive resource that's in front of us, which we call waste. Anthony said 25 million tonnes of waste going into landfill each year, and Visi used 2 million tonnes of it. That's 23 million tonnes if you're out there and game to make a dent in things. Sandra from Nestle pointed to the work they were doing with Daniel Gallagher and the team at IQ Renew, who are trialling collection of soft plastics from 140,000 homes on the New South Wales Central Coast, and then transformation through chemical recycling known as CAT-HTR, a process invented in Australia by Lycella, where the plastics are reduced into an oil which can be used for further fuel, chemical and new plastic production. Brooke Donnelly of the Packaging Covenant spoke to problems before and after the bin and directed folks to the federal government's National Waste Action Plan, with the goal being to phase out problematic and unnecessary plastics by 2025 and that all packaging is recyclable or compostable. The action plan is quite detailed and worth your time. Links to everything I'm mentioning are in the video description. Gail from the Waste Management Association spoke to the nature of circular economy, that we need a paradigm shift to avoid creation of waste at first instance, and by redesigning products to enable reuse, repair, and manufacture in Australia, there is an opportunity to create four times as many jobs in this area than we have now. I'd cite here that Clean Energy Australia notes that in 2017, Australia generated 67 million tonnes of waste, which is half a tonne for every person in the country per year, with 130,000 tonnes of plastic going into our waterways and oceans. The conversation honed in on the fact that we need to rethink our approach to creation, shifting to reuse and refurbishment, and that by looking at sustainable design, we can eliminate products to landfill, rather than focus on recycling a waste stream. Who's going to pay for it? I applaud Anthony Pratt's approach here, where I quote him as saying, if you can tear it, we'll take it. Speaking for myself to you, it's high time we got serious about the fact that externalized cost is ruining our planet. And I'm excited to see the work of the Global Steering Group on Impact Investment, the Impact Management Program, and the Harvard Business School working towards impact-weighted accounts, where they're able to calculate the monetary environmental impact for over 2,000 large companies around the world. This means consumers are going to be able to see for a company that makes X billion dollars of profit, they create X billion dollars of environmental impact that the rest of the world, governments, citizens and other businesses have to pay for. If you're in the tech industry, you know who Atlassian are. If you're not, you likely use their products every day. Jira, Confluence and Trello and may have never heard of Atlassian. They're an Australian unicorn, valued at over $50 billion in 2019, and are in something massive like 70% of the Fortune 500 and ASX Top 100, NASA, eBay, Toyota, Coles. For full disclosure, i spent the past four and a half years as a director of marketing and communications for one of their platinum enterprise partners, Design Industries, so I may be more of a fan than most. This brings us to the session with Mike Cannon-Brooks. Atlassian co-CEO, who is into some remarkable things, my favourite being challenging in Elon Musk to get South Australia's big battery happening, and more recently, getting behind building the biggest solar farm in Australia and the Northern Territory to supply Singapore with power via an undersea cable. Mike spoke to the strength of the Australian sustainability community, that outside of government, we were very progressive, with the Business Council of Australia calling for net zero by 2050, and over 50% of the ASX already signed onto RE100, which is the global initiative to generate 100% of a company's power from renewable resources. Mike talked to the huge potential for the hydrogen economy, and this being seen as a long-term goal for Australia. Turning to our energy mix in AMEO, the Australian Energy Market Operator's Integrated System Plan, gas makes up 10% of our mix in the national energy market. So when discovering a gas-led recovery and it being a big transition fuel for the next 20 years, this simply isn't the case. The AMEO plan shows that whilst existing gas infrastructure needs to stay in place, no extra gas power plants are needed. Mike stated that if you want the lowest cost of energy and the quickest transition, gas is not the option. And when we talk about massive new gas extraction, that's an entirely different proposition. Putting it quite simply, over the next 20 years, we have to electrify everything and generate all of that electricity with renewables. The discussion on batteries and disambiguating them was fascinating. For example, that pumped hydro is a battery. It was put that rather than being obsessed by batteries, we need to be obsessed by the smart, efficient management of our energy. Also, that one of the greatest challenges is lobbyists, and that decentralised energy sources are truly democratic. They don't have a paid group of folks walking around Canberra trying to push individual approvals through. Basically, the sun doesn't have a lobbyist. To quote as accurately as I can, renewables represent the single best economic growth and strategic advantage for Australia. We can export energy, lower our cost of manufacturing, and create jobs, leading to the lowest power price in the world. We have no shortage of resources, and we have the technology to do it. Right now, with the pandemic crisis, we're in a clear moment of choice as to how we recover our economy, the green and gold recovery. This is the best option we have, not only for our hearts, but for our minds. Mike was asked why this wasn't getting through, and he talked to a lack of history, and that to be proactive, you require a belief in the future rather than looking backwards. He still finds people saying to him renewables are expensive, which is simply untrue. Learning and growth rates have to be considered. Where an industry struggles to communicate progress at a government level, it's easy to say the person is not hearing you. The how we say it and how we get it across is our problem. At the start of this section, I mentioned the undersea power cable to Singapore. And Mike got talking about intercontinental power grids and how these are vastly more efficient ways of transporting energy. He said, think about filling a ship with coal, hydrogen or oil. And even if that ship is powered by hydrogen and then sailing it across an ocean compared to sending power through a cable is vastly more inefficient. Now imagine many, many cables and imagine the massive economic engine we could create for the Northern Territory government by turning our landmass into a renewable power generator and exporter. Better yet, think about batteries and time zones. With west to east connectivity, We need vastly less storage in the global network, as Western Australia is four hours ahead of a huge amount of population, and we can export sun and wind power to two to three billion people directly north of us. We have massive space to generate from and an ability to do this. So what kind of COVID economic recovery should we all be lobbying for? Thanks for joining me for part one of the Summit Recap. Please help me get the word out by sharing this video, like, leave a comment. And make sure to follow my profile for more insights like this one, as well as interviews with world leaders in business, politics, and society. If you're working on something important that you want to succeed, let's have a chat about ensuring its success by crafting the message through video. Take a look at bravocharlie.global for more.